And here we go. Let's <laughs> this goose. <laughs> I don't apocalypse on Shabbos. <laughs> Trump Shabbos. <laughs> I say that doesn't sound like too good of a story for him then. <laughs> yes, it's an 80s film, but it's a quintessential 80s film. That motherfucker gets me excited about science. But yes, I, I do think that this movie requires a couple more views. I have the same cup size as Doc Hawk. <laughs> Give me my sandwich. <laughs> no crusts. Was it an instant classic for you? Uh, no. Welcome to Don't Be Crazy Podcast. I'm Justin Cavender, and with me as always is Mr. Zachary Rancourt. Here we discuss and dissect what makes a film, past or present, absolutely amazing, or just pure rubbish. All that we ask of each other, don't be crazy. Don't be crazy, Zach. Oh, I'm going to try not to. I got my, my coffee. This is my giggle juice. Not that monster. But yeah, I'm going to try, man. How are you? I am fabulous. Thank you for asking. Oh, that's that's good. That's good to know. <laughs> no, no complaints. <laughs> no complaints. Um, yeah. Uh, how's how's everything going with you in life? How's how's work? How's all that stuff? Um, everything is fabulous. No Again, no complaints. <laughs> I just got back from Utah. That's a fun place. <laughs> ah, the land of debauchery. And snow. <laughs> and snow. I can only imagine how cold it is right, right now there. Yeah, it was pretty chilly. I was yeah. only there for a day. Went to a, a jazz game against the Trailblazers. So that was fun. Ooh, did you see Carl Malone? I did not. <laughs> John Stockton? No, he, he lives in Washington. I know. Uh, he went to Gonzaga, I believe. So that's you a know, school. You know what's funny? <laughs> Have you seen um, Encino Man by chance? Yeah. Um, there's this Long part when when Brendan Fraser is like looking at the this poster, and Sean Astin's like Gonzaga's, <laughs> and then when they go to school the next day, he sees this beautiful woman and he reaches for her breast and he goes, Gonzaga's <laughs> she like covers herself up. And anytime I see the Gonzaga school, I, mm-hmm. I have to say it that way. <laughs> Very nice. Very yeah. nice. One of them idiosyncratic things about me, I suppose. <laughs> um really quick i'll give recommend my recommendations or not recommendations for what i watched this week um i watched american factory it's a documentary on netflix that is well as the time of this recording the academy awards are tonight and it is nominated for best documentary it is a a, a netflix joint but um uh barack and michelle obama's production company uh, produced it. So it is essentially about an Ohio, a place in Ohio, a factory that uh, produces glass for automobiles. It's revived by this Japanese company and they have to go through all the basically trials and tribulations of the American workforce. And it's, it's quite interesting. It got a little boring after a bit, but yeah, uh, it's worth it. It's worth a check out on Netflix. And then the other one was the art of self-defense that's with Jesse Eisenberg. And it's a dark, dark comedy, but uh, he basically gets attacked by some goons and decides to take up karate. But then it turns out his sensei, sensei is a piece of shit. So he he like vows to fight him. So it's uh, it's <laughs> sensei it's, Ira. Yeah, right. It's very, very interesting. But uh, yeah, I watched those. So Man, you watch I, can't, anything, Justin? I, I can't get into Jesse Eisenberg. 
Yeah, he's kind of, I don't know, he's so melancholy, and I don't know. I just, I hated him as Lex Luthor. Oh, God, he's the worst as Lex Luthor. I did like him, though, as Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network. I think that was his best performance, in my opinion. Mm. Okay. Did you, did you watch anything? Uh, I watched Into the Spider-Verse again. I, I love that movie. It's so good. I know. It is it, really good. It's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> it's good. so good. Yeah, no, it's excellent. I really love it. I'm just watching on the plane. I'm just like, oh my god, this is the best movie ever. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. We should do that for a podcast one day. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so good. Yeah, but uh, today we are going to talk about Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. You always ask we... me what movie we're going to do in this time. Well, I didn't because I'm shaking things up. I'm shaking and baking. Um, and this movie was directed by Guillermo del Toro. God, I always have the hardest time seeing that Guillermo del Toro. And, uh, it was also written by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, this movie has a cast that probably no one would know from, unless you were like a Spanish film auteur, uh, Ivana Baquero, Sergei Lopez, Maribel Verdu, Doug Jones. I mean, he's probably the most famous that we know from it just cause he's been in so many of his creations. Um, Ariadna Gill, Alex Angulo, Manolo Solo, Cesar Vea, and Roger Casamajor. Um, yeah. Do you have reception in front of you? Uh, critical I, reception. I did. Yes, I do. I have I have critical reception by way of your favorite website, the Rotten Tomates. Yeah, the Christian Science Reviewer. <laughs> this movie is sitting at a whopping 95% certified fresh. Everyone loves it. Um, the audience score is uh, at 91, so very nice. Uh, let's see here. We have Nigel Andrews from the Financial Times. He says, bewitchingly bonkers. The Financial oh. Times? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Everyone's got a, a reviewer. <laughs> Okay. He's got a little press badge. He flashes it to get it to free shit. <laughs> For the Financial Times? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Relax. <laughs> Everybody reads the Financial Times. You got to have a movie critic, too. I, I don't. Uh, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian. Let's see. It's so audacious and so technically accomplished, and it arrives here Garland with so many radiant superlatives that I wish I liked it more. Ah. 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 Sounds like me. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like someone that doesn't know jack shit about movies. Uh, Nicholas Barber from The Independent. Best out of the UK. Uh, It's less of a labyrinth than a forest path. One that takes you through wonderful scenery, but doesn't lead anywhere. Wow. Couldn't disagree (laughs) with you more. Mr. Barber, go get a haircut. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> <laughs> Allison Rose from Flick Direct. I would call it the other way around. I would call it Direct Flick. <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> That's just a, just a personal opinion there. Uh, Del Toro is a magnificent storyteller. Uh, and this labor of love is one of his many masterpieces. I don't know if I like the term labor of love. I think it's pretty fitting for this. I feel like this was a very intimate film, and, and it was, I mean, you could tell. I, it was I mean, I know what it means. Him. I just don't yeah. like the term. I feel like it is oh. it's one of those things where it's become cliche. Yeah, I can see that. Like, like a love letter to the fans and yeah. a labor of love. Ugh. 
All right. Remind me to destroy the love letter I wrote for you for Valentine's Day. Yeah, I'll just rip it up myself. <laughs> Give it. <laughs> Let me have it. Aww. Andy wants to see it. <laughs> Andy wants to see it. <laughs> uh, Matthew Lucas from the Dispatch, based out of Lexington. Is that North Carolina? Go on, uh, and Kentucky. Up. Kentucky, right? Well, I know that normally Lexington is in Kentucky, but this one says oh. Lexington, comma NC. Oh, weird. I know. That's probably why it has the NC. So you maybe it's it uh, in Kentucky. Like, maybe it means no clue. Like it doesn't know yeah, where it is. Maybe. Uh, remember P. <laughs> Pablo? He had that song. North Carolina, yeah. go on and raise up. Take your shirt off. Twist it around your head. Spin like a helicopter. <laughs> Who am I? P. <laughs> Pie, motherfucker. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that one. That one was in uh, uh, Step Up. <laughs> <laughs> I like step one up too. Or, one or Channing Tatum steps up. I think you mean Tanning Chatum. What did I say? No, I'm just kidding. It's Channing Tatum. That's <laughs> funny because we had an argument about that one time on the Geek Legacy podcast well, over the movie Talking. I mean, it was called Fighting, but all they did was talk. And oh, dude, that movie sucked. It. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, anyway, Matthew Lucas. He says, a modern day fable for the ages, one that will live in the hearts of all who see it. For years to come. Unless your name is Zachary Darnell Food Court, then you just shit all over it. Darnell Food Court. <laughs> Whatever. Hmm. Spoiler alert. Hannah Ryan here from Screen Queens says, although Pan's Labyrinth ends in tragedy, it does so it does to show us I'm sorry. It does so to show us that. That is the worst sentence I've ever read in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try this again before I like stroke out. Although Fan's Labyrinth ends in tragedy, it does so to show us that regardless of what we are told, there are no happy endings in war. See, I disagree. I think it is a happy ending. Really? Yeah. Absolutely. I think it was 100% a happy ending. So we'll discuss. You better elaborate on that. I mean, I can do that right now if you want. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's okay. We'll get into it. Real quick, the awards for this one. Uh, so it was, I mean, I guess this is uh, topical because the Academy Awards tonight, but uh, it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Achievement in Music, um, best foreign language film, best achievement in makeup, best achievement in art direction, and also best achievement in cinematography. It won for cinematography, art direction, and makeup. Deservedly so. I mean, it's absolutely incredible from a technical standpoint from those. So mm -hmm. do, you, do you have the box office numbers? And these are actually incredibly shocking, these box office numbers. Sure. This movie costs exactly $19 million to make. And in the United States, it made a whopping $568,000 on opening weekend, and the gross in the U.S. was $37.6 million worldwide, pulled in a whopping $83 million. So people just did not see this, the opening weekend in the U.S. That's so interesting to make under a million dollars for such a, a big movie now. I mean, it just goes to show that with time, you know, certain films that we may brush off um you know, well it might on. have even had like a limited release this strikes me as the kind of movie Possibly. that is opening in four major cities 
and that's yeah. it. And then Dayton, Ohio, um, yeah. Toledo, uh, <laughs> yeah, all in all in Ohio, <laughs> Yelm, Washington. <laughs> so. Cool. Are you done? Sorry, I wanted to be funny like you. There's no Yelm. It's made up. There's a Yelm in Washington. I, I drove through it. There's nothing there. All right. <laughs> Okay, uh, fun facts. Stephen King, so this one was I, I thought was really surprising. Uh, Stephen King attended a screening of the film and sat next to Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. And according to del Toro, King squirmed when the pale man chased Ophelia. Del Toro compared the experience of seeing King's reaction to winning an Oscar. Yeah, so that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. If you can take this horror legend, um, Stephen King, and make him squirm from the pale man. And I mean, I'm right there with him. I thought the design of the pale man was so incredible and i was like oh god <laughs> that is that is what my nightmare would be is having that thing chase me like <laughs> so i thought that was awesome uh doug jones had to memorize not only his his own lines in spanish a language he does not speak but also ivana Baquero's lines so he knew when to speak his next line the servos in the headpiece that made the facial expressions and ears move were so loud he often couldn't hear her speak her lines. Crazy. What a it just goes to show that guy's a he's a hardcore man. Yeah. He's really good. Uh, he's very good. Uh, Del Toro is famous for compiling books full of notes and drawings about his ideas before turning them into films, something he regards as essential to the process. He left years worth of notes for his this film in the back of a cab and when he discovered them missing he thought it was the end of the project however the cab driver found them and realized their importance tracked him down and returned them at great personal difficulty and expense del toro was convinced that this was a blessing and it made him ever more determined to complete this film wow. that's pretty cool to believe in the goodness of strangers sometimes so yeah that's all i have uh let me just jump right into the uh synopsis so we can get talking so <clears throat> in a disbanded and war-torn 1944 Spain, Ophelia and her pregnant mother make their way to a secret wooded lair to live with the nefarious Captain Vidal, father to the unborn child and commander of the Spanish military. Enamored with fairy tales, Ophelia uses magic to escape the dark realities that surround her, uncovering a fairy who leads her to an underground labyrinth. Ophelia meets a mythical fawn who tells her that she must complete three tasks in order to take her rightful throne as Queen of the Underworld. The story intertwines realism with fantasy as we see Ophelia handle a burdensome Toad King, accomplishing her first task. Meanwhile, caretaker Mercedes and Dr. Ferrero carefully sneak supplies to aid guerrilla fighters in the outskirt forest surrounding the lair. Videl feels the pressure of the fighters closing in and stresses his want for a son, regardless if his wife dies or not. Ophelia is then given a second task, retrieving a dagger from a gangly pale man creature who is known for eating children. Despite the fawn's warning, Ophelia has herself a midnight snack and awakens the pale man, narrowly escaping his clutches. The fawn is angry at Ophelia for disobeying his orders and refuses to give her the final task. Back in the real world, Vidal captures a guerrilla fighter and tortures him to giving up information. After discovering the doctor was a rat, he shoots him in the back while his wife is slowly dying upstairs from childbirth complications. Ophelia's mother dies, but the baby boy survives. After the funeral, Ophelia is greeted by the fawn, who has a change of heart. Ophelia has one more chance to complete her final task, kidnap her brother, and take him to the labyrinth. Videl discovers Mercedes as a traitor and attempts to torture her, but she violently escapes after stabbing him several times. 
The rebels close in as Vidal notices Ophelia taking her brother away. Vidal, who drank a drugged-up tequila, chases Ophelia to the labyrinth with intent to harm her. Once, once at the labyrinth, the fawn tells Ophelia that he requires a blood sacrifice from her little brother in order to complete the final task. Ophelia refuses as Vidal sees her talking to apparently no one. Vidal takes the boy and shoots Ophelia, leaving her for dead. Vidal is intercepted by the Rebel Alliance as they take the boy and finally kill him, ending his reign of terror. As Mercedes holds Ophelia's dying body, her blood drips her blood drips into the labyrinth in her self-sacrifice. Ophelia is then finally seen in the kingdom of the underworld, reuniting with her mother and father and taking her rightful throne next to them. Amidst all the ugliness in the world, there will always be beauty if you find it. Boom. Panth Labyrinth. And we're done. That's the podcast. That's the show. <laughs> so, first and, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just said perfect. Yeah. So first and foremost, um, what did you think about this movie? I loved it. Really? Yep. Absolutely. I think it is. It's a gorgeous uh, take on a on a fairy tale. Um, I've always been partial to fairy tales. I think they're fun, fun little uh, stories to tell that often have some sort of like in your face, like uh, moral tale. Like, and that's why you don't go around, you know, chopping off hands or something like that. <laughs> you know, they always have some sort of fun takeaway and uh there they are pretty pretty dark like if you've ever read any like the the grim fairy tales yeah they're um, very dark in fact one of the lines from the movie is when um ophelia's mother she's like you're getting older and you'll see that in life uh it isn't like your fairy tales the world is a cruel place and, and you'll learn that it even hurts and i'm thinking are you kidding me have you even read a fucking fairy tale <laughs> they're all so sad and <laughs> so heartbreaking and cruel and I think cruel is a perfect word for them. Mm-hmm. And so that just goes to show how disconnected adults can be from their kids. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, when when was the last time you saw this before, like yesterday or whatever? Uh, when it came out. So like back in 2006? Yeah. Okay. Did you see it in theaters? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. What were your thoughts then, if you remember? Oh yeah, I, I loved it. Really? And yeah, it, it I'm had... a, I'm a fan of like the fantastical. Yeah, I like, I like fantasy stuff. And nothing, it hasn't changed. Your thoughts haven't changed. Have you like looked at it more analytically, or you're just like, I just really love this movie. No, that's it just is what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't learn anything new from the first time that I saw it. I just yeah. watched it again. I'm like, God damn, this is such a good movie. Yeah. Zach's probably gonna hate it because it's so good. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> So so here's here's my thing about it. I was so bought into this movie because I'm in the same boat as you with this, you know, fantastic realism sort of thing where it's like Big Fish is a good example where it's it's it takes place in the real world. But there's this magic fantasy or something going on, mm-hmm. uh, th- things like that. And Lady in the Water. Um, I love the fairy tale aspect. And when you kind of jive it with this real world setting and scenario but um i was bought in for this entire film i thought the characters were great the set deck was great the production was incredible all this stuff and then the thing that took me out of it was the ending and i think it's just because right away when i saw it happen i'm like she just dies that pissed me off because i was bought into this fantasy and this fairy tale and i'm like fairy tales are supposed to have a good ending 
right? It does. Well, <laughs> she goes back to her kingdom. She's reunited so, with her mother and father. I understand her rightful place back on on the throne. But I, but in the moment, I was like, "That's not what I wanted," and and so you're supposed to hang out in some cabin with no electricity and and lousy food. So, <laughs> That's the happy ending. <laughs> so, so this is this is a, a really good example of of a movie that I needed to let sit with me for a little longer. Uh, and I think as you and I are talking, and even before we kind of started talking about this, I'm appreciating it more and more as, as it goes on. But from in the heat of the moment, when I when I saw it, I was just like, really? Like that, it really pissed me off because I did not think she deserved to die. Even though even though I know what you're saying, like she, we got a quote unquote happy ending, but I think that's really subjective. So I think as we go go on though, you know. How is it subjective? I don't, it, dude. It is. It's. <laughs> I, I. I think that there's the whole film deals with this fairy tale sense, and is it real? Is it not real? And it's incredibly ambigu or uh, ambiguous. But and... I mean, but I mean, he, they pan or the the fawn rather mm-hmm. uh, even says, you know, it's said that the princess returned to her father's kingdom, that she reigned there with justice and a kind heart for many centuries. And that she was loved by her people. All that she left behind were small traces of her time on earth, visibly only to those who know where to look. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. Oh, absolutely. But I think at that point, I was still kind of pissed from her being killed. Arms crossed, shaking my head on the couch, writing an angry letter, like to Yelp. Isn't that what like angry white people do? We just write letters to Yelp. That's what I do. I know. So, I mean, but visually, and my congressman, I write my yeah, congressman too. There you go. Visually, it was awesome. It was such a spectacle. And I, I like the risks that Del Toro took. Uh, the effects, you know, he used were superb. But that that point at the end just got weak for me. I, I enjoyed all the characters too, though. They, I mean, for everything, it's so weird because I, I think I'm a pretty smart person for the most part. But I just had such a hard time grasping the concept of this movie when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And, and and like it had all the elements of what I should love, right? It's just I don't know. It was so even it, okay. So <laughs> I get it. I, it's a lot to digest. And totally. you know, one of, one of the things that I think helps transport you into this world is that uh, as an American audience, we are not familiar with any of these people. Um, so it helps buy into the story a lot. Like it's not just Tom Cruise running for two and a half hours. You know what I mean? It's it's it, for all we know, these are real people and, and with real problems <laughs> because we have no idea who these people are, which is one thing that's always really cool about watching foreign films is that you've, you've never seen them before. And it helps uh, with the storytelling, I think, at least in my mind. I don't know about you, but that's how I am. Um, but at the very beginning, um, you know, they're telling the story about, and it literally ends with with him saying, uh, it says, a long time ago in the underground realm where there lies no lies or pain, uh, there lived a princess who dreamed of the human world. She dreamed of blue skies, soft breeze, and sunshine. One day, eluding her keepers, the princess escaped. Once outside, the brightness blinded her and he raced, and erased every trace of her past from her memory. She forgot who she was and where she came from. Her body suffered... Uh, cold, sickness, and pain. Eventually, she died. However, her father, the king, always knew that the princess's soul would return, perhaps in another body, in another place, at another time, and he would wait for her until he drew his last breath 
until the world stopped turning. And I think that is absolutely beautiful. And then we actually get to see that. We get to see her return. And to me, that is just 100% a happy ending. Yeah, I agree. When you when you look at the context like that, I mean, that I'll admit that escaped me at the beginning because I was I was paying attention to it, but I was also trying to look at the visuals and like pay attention and so it kind of lost me at first and it opens with her dying <laughs> right right and 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 I understand that but like you you kind of forget that after a little bit and which is, which I, means that you got sucked into the story like you were you were yes. 100% on board which is a totally. good Totally. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, like I was, I was in this movie and I'm like, okay, cool. I, I dig it. But there was just a couple things, you know, some, some stupid mistakes that she made. And then the final scene I thought was so egregious when they, they killed her. Cause I'm like, what was the point of her taking her brother then? Cause you know, that was, that was pointless. And so it just, I don't know that, that bummed me out, but like any, good person i did my research and i i started looking for other people's opinions and i watched some really good videos on youtube and it really kind of opened it up for me because i was like you know what i love these things like did you like lady in the water uh oh (laughs) yeah sure we'll say yes (laughs) oh interesting uh there are things that i like about it yes yeah i really liked it when i saw it a long time ago because i thought it was so fun and just different but those came this came out the same year so stupid that m night Shyamalan, his character would write a piece of work that would change the world <laughs> I, was I know like, holy shit dude that yeah <laughs> on this man <laughs> like that just blew me away i was like are you fucking kidding me of all the parts he could play in this movie he could have been like rando guy number six but he wanted to play the character that wrote something so amazing that it was going to change the world like in a yeah. excellent adventure sort of way very like self-prophesizing and he, yeah man i was like eat a dick dude that, that did piss me off i was on board until that happened i was like are you, are you fucking serious no yeah, that that really pissed me off. And I was I was like, OK, dude, whatever. <laughs> I felt like I just got trolled. I, I was like, holy shit, dude, this guy. Funny man. Yeah. He's a comedian. Who knew? Along the lines with that fairy tale stuff, Walt Disney is responsible for creating this viewing experience for the world to kind of explore fairy tales like the grim fairy tales and stuff. Uh, he created a clear beginning, middle and end in which he set this paradigm for how the fairy tale should be constructed on film. What is our obsession? Not just you and I, but I mean, what is the obsession with a fairy tale? I'm asking you. <laughs> Are you asking me? <laughs> yeah, I'm asking you. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I just like the idea of it. Like you're, you're supposed to learn from them. There's this, there's this, it's a cautionary tale. A lot of times, um, you know, whether it be about promises or greed or, or just being nice to strangers, whatever. They all have this this sort of underlying uh, theme uh, and takeaway that I think we can all learn from. I think that's what's so fun about them. And we like storytelling. I mean, just think about times where, uh, like, campfire tales or or like old man telling you the story. You know, like a bedtime story, whatever. Something to just sort of. Uh, play with your imagination. I think that they're just fun. Yeah. I've always, I've always wanted to be a good storyteller and I've always wanted to 
you know, like write him down and be that old man who's like whittling a piece of wood and has this great story to tell somebody. But um, that's maybe why I really like fairy tales is because you're right. It's it's just this escapism and it's from escapism from our mundane society. Uh, it's it, it the moral the moral thing and the lessons. I mean, yeah, but for me, that's not really even it. I think it's just because we all like happy endings. And I mean, I'm I. A lot of those fairy tales don't have happy endings. Right. But what Disney did was created it very, very, you know, he set this paradigm where it, it's it's constructed the same way, like especially the early Disney films where, you know, damsel in distress, something happens, Prince Charming comes, saves her and boom, they get married, happy ending. It was a lot of that kind of stuff. And so those were the happy endings. But you're right. Like the grim fairy tales were dark. They were very dark. And mm-hmm. uh he he lightened them up. I mean, it's genius if you think about it, but I think I just bought into the the fairy tale needs to have a happy ending. And and, and so it's it's really nice because Del Toro was basically subverting our expectations on these. Like we, he he started using, and it's a perfect example. God, as I'm saying this, I'm like thinking that I like this movie more now. <laughs> um, so I, I watched this really good video from Nerd Rider 1 on this. And he was basically saying in this video how, Walt Disney has this, you know, this set process for the fairy tales. And as a viewer, we're watching that and expecting this stuff to happen. But what Del Toro is doing is a big theme of this movie is is, is disobeying. And what Del Toro is doing is he's, he, he's, he's being unconventional and throwing that stuff out and taking you on different paths. So it's like, look, this is your own interpretation of how this ending can be. And so for like you, you thought it was a happy ending. And for me, I was pissed at first, but I totally understand where, what you're saying and where you're coming from. Because when you reread that intro, it makes way more sense now that she's back in her reigning as queen of the underworld. Like that totally makes sense. So, yeah, I think I think I kind of like this a little bit better now. <laughs> Don't be crazy, Zach. Don't be crazy. But yeah, fairy tales are so interesting. I mean, I'm just I think I like that that magic that magical fan- fantastical you know reality and that's why i like movies like big fish too like i was saying it's just it's outside of the ordinary right <laughs> yeah it's uh you know one thing i kept looking when i was watching this movie it reminded me of um sucker punch but in sucker punch was not nearly as good as this one sucker punch <laughs> you know what i mean right yeah yeah so so, so that that's a movie where it's all in their head yeah, like they're in, literally in a mental institution, and they're finding their happy place, mm-hmm. and and that is completely. Whereas this one, I interpret as real. So you don't think that Ophelia is using this um, escapism as like a coping mechanism to deal with these atrocities of fascist Spain, all the violence not, around her? Not at all. I really? think that she's one hundred percent invested, and and it is all real. So there's. I got to play devil's advocate on this both ways. So there's there's some evidence that it it was real because you know like when they when the the path opens like towards the climax of the movie when she's running away from Vidal and she's in the labyrinth and the, and the path opens for her and it's like boom she's already now at the at the hole. Mm-hmm. Um that how the hell would that have happened? That has to be real, right? The other things like with the mandrake root when she throws or when the mom throws yeah, out the fire. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, and then she dies. Yeah. And yep. then, 
And then when she's looking at the book and it's filling in and you can see sort of the anatomy of a woman and then horrible things happening, like it fills with red. Yeah. Um, then she opens up the door and her mother is is now dying. Yeah. Um, I don't know. To me, that uh, made it more real. And um, when she's opening up the book, one thing that is interesting is that the font is like a medieval font. Yeah. In the book, which I thought was really cool. It wasn't just normal words on a on a page. It was like straight out of Sword in the Stone handwriting. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Which I really do. <laughs> um and when she uh when she drugs Vidal with his tequila, you know, he chases her. And this is the scene that I was like, wait a minute, and I had to think about it a little more. So he sees her talking to no one when she's talking to the fawn and the fawn is like, give me the boy. I need to have a blood sacrifice. And she defies him. Vidal looks at her and is like, what the hell? She's talking to no one. I think she's crazy or whatever. Right. But that is up for debate because if you go back on it now, remember he is, he could be hallucinating because he, he drank that, that sleepy juice and uh, he becomes an unreliable narrator at that point. Like we don't know if he's, not seeing the fawn or what's going on. So I think that, that I, don't, was... I don't think uh, he is. I think that you have to be special to see what's happening in this world. Really? Otherwise, like you have well, to be good. I, no, I think that you have to be part of, of this, uh, kingdom mm-hmm. in order to see these creatures. Um, and I only say that because, um, otherwise this fawn would have been, uh, discovered long ago. You know what I mean? Like it'd be mm-hmm. hard for, the, for their survival if the if they were just out walking about. Right. I mean, even people would stumble on them accidentally. But like, even the fairies were just insects. That's one of the coolest things about um, this movie. At the very beginning, you know, she sees an insect and she thinks it's a fairy. She's like, "Oh my god, it's a it's a fairy!" And before she even shows it in the book, like where it's like a little purse, like a Tinkerbell type fairy, um, her interpretation immediately is that. This strange creature is a fairy. And I love how um, th- the idea of a child sees something different than what you and I would see. We might be like, oh, my God, it's a creepy crawly. Get it away. <laughs> Whereas she's like, she wants to get to know it. She wants to be friends with it. She's like, oh, my God, this is a fairy. Look at this crazy creature. I love this thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas we would be like, oh, kill it. Kill it. I don't know. I, I, I love that. I, but yeah, I, I was under the impression that because... He, this is a, the fawn is a magical creature. He's part of a different world, and that is why he didn't see it. Yeah, no, I think I think there's validity in what you're saying completely, and that's just again, that's just your your take on it. But I I totally see that. Like, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. So, um, a certain way. Well, actually, hold on. Before I jump into that, uh, did you notice the the edits and the transitions that Del Toro was using with? Uh, he he would use things to block scenes or he would use a point to um, set as a transition, like a tree would swipe across the screen and then we're in a different location. Mm-hmm. So he did that. And I thought that that was really interesting. And that goes along the lines of, of this being a fairy tale because he he transitions from the real world to, you know, the labyrinth world or to this this magical world. And he did it often because I had to actually rewind it a few times. But there was like a scene in particular when Mercedes uh, early on is in Vidal's office and then she walks and then a door comes across frame. And then 
the next like it, it it's it's smooth and it's it's transitioning her into the kitchen and i'm like wait a minute his office is right next to the kitchen but then i was like oh okay never mind he's just setting us up for that kind of stuff and then we see it apparently in other other settings and uh, i thought that that was really cool i thought that blended well and it created the sense of ambiguity uh, a certain way you could interpret this film is the apparent uh, is apparent with the struggle of power. So Videl is the superior, yet he isn't always in control. Uh, many people disobey him, both directly and indirectly. And is disobedience an important aspect in this film? Like, do you think it is? Um, I mean, I would say so, yeah, because the very beginning, the first words of the, of the movie are talking about how uh, the princess defied like the rules of the kingdom and literally went out and died. <laughs> yeah. So I would say yes. Then you also have the the rebels that are that are trying to stick it to the man. You know, there's this there's this fascist military then they're <clears throat> excuse me, they're trying to bring down, which is obviously very disobedient. Mercedes is a working for the rebels. She's she is doing everything that she can. Same with the doctor. You know, it's all about, you know, sticking it to the man. <laughs> As it were. Yeah. The fawn tells her not to eat and she does. Um, God, that pissed me off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's like that's my favorite scene in this whole movie. Man, it's so scary. I love it. The idea of a child killer, like an eat, someone that eats kids. Oh, it's just it's just the worst. Well, there's like, yeah. like Freddy Krueger on on steroids <laughs> like it's just terrible with eyes in his hands <laughs> yeah oh and i told you that i yawn with my hands like that yeah <laughs> drives alex crazy anytime i have to yawn i put my hands on my eyes just like that creep the like the pale man does and she's like what are you doing i'm like don't worry about it I'm I try, like, I hate it. I'm I, like, I know it's gross. <laughs> I, try, I tried to yawn like that the other day after you told me it. And I was like, I just started laughing because I imagine you doing it. And I'm like, oh, my God. She's got like this mouth open dude with his hand. <laughs> it's so <laughs> off-putting. You should try it. Your friends will be like, oh. Uh, like, yeah. Um, but no, I, I, you're right. I mean, like, I, I think that they're, the, the disobedience is a huge aspect of it. But do you think that... Uh, Del Toro is trying to say disobedience is good or bad in this in this film. Like, do you think um, that disobedience is always going to be bad? Or yeah. You know? Well, I don't. I don't think there's a, a right answer. I think it's just all about choice. You know, you you do what you think is right. Yeah, because I mean, like, it's you know, she Prin Princess Moana disobeyed her, the king, and then she died essentially, right? But right. the so I think in her case, it's just kids kids don't listen they never do <laughs> like my dog I, she doesn't listen either and like and i'm okay with that i've accepted it i don't get mad at her i just know that she needs to learn on her own and you know when i was a kid my dad said you know don't touch the stove it's hot and i'm like i mean it can't be that hot. <laughs> took a while to make that water boil let's see how hot it is oh my god that was hot <laughs> you, just, you, gotta, you gotta learn that's just the way the world works and someone can tell you all day long, but until you figure it out for yourself, you're never going to know. That's just that's just the way humans work. We have to experience shit for ourselves. And in her case, she is a starving child that that saw like this delicious feast and, and wanted a piece of it. Yeah. And, and in my mind, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I, I get that she was hungry and that she hasn't had a happy childhood. And for a second, she was she was swayed by this. Uh, smorgasbord of food 
and this huge feast. And that's what became important to her. And to be fair, those grapes looked really tasty. That was a big grape. That was a very big grape. It was like bigger than her face. So <laughs> those did look pretty good. I mean, I think that there was an allusion to, you know, like the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But um, he uses a ton of allusions in this film in general. But uh, it, it's funny, though, about the pale man. I saw some correlation between him and Vidal. Like he, sure. he kind of was like Vidal, right? So um, he essentially... There, there are different iterations of this pale man throughout history, and Del Toro is is famous for looking at those. But I mean, even Krampus, right? Krampus would eat children if they were bad. Like, how horrific is that? You know that this this being would do that, but it was they were bad children. And so, um, I think that when you when you add that illusion into this, it's it's it makes such an interesting story, and it goes so much deeper than what's on on the surface. And uh, I, I I appreciated that. I mean, in Del Toro is just such a genius with his monster creation that it, it works well. And this was like probably the first time we really got to see it to full effect. Um, mm-hmm. But, oh, yeah, just uh, just insane to me. So um, yeah, there, apparently there's a, a Japanese monster, like a mythical Japanese monster called the Tenome. Mm-hmm. Might be Tenome, I don't know. It's a Wikipedia thing. But um, he has um, uh, hand eyes. Same thing. Ugh. kind of like bandai oh and like, and like you know, he has like all that like uh foldy skin and just gross oh dude uh-huh. and like the blood on his mouth and just that was uh, yeah like everything about it was so disturbing and i can't get that image out of my head shit even the fawn was kind of scary yeah fawn was cool I, I dug him and doug jones did both roles yeah yeah, yeah. man he's he's the way, so the way he walked you know, it's so funny because like andy circus gets you know, all this credit for uh, being Gollum and everything. He, he, and, and he should. He was 100% just killing it as 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 uh, doing like the mocap and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, like second to none, right? But Doug Jones is someone that is just constantly working. He's he's done. He's got a billion credits to his name. And I just, I think it's one of those things that if you're, if you're a, a, a creature of geek culture and you know everything about everything, then you can appreciate Doug Jones. But for those people that just watch stuff here and there and they're like, wow, that monster was really amazing. Or wow, that creature was really cool. I it's 99.9% of the time. It's Doug Jones playing that role. Totally. I mean, he's in, he's in so many different things and yeah, you're right. Like we've, he was in the shape of water and it would have been cool if he actually got an Oscar nomination for that, for like best performance. Uh, Cause he doesn't have any lines, but it's all just, you know himself, and it's practical. They're all practical. There's barely any CGI. I guess in mm-hmm. he talks when he's in Hellboy because he plays Abe Sapien, so he does he does talk. But uh, yeah. So could you consider possibly could you consider this movie a horror film under the right circumstances? Uh, mm, not from no. I don't think it was a horror movie. It was pretty disturbing, man. There was some heavy imagery. Yeah, the torture scene was pretty rough. I hated that uh, with the stutter guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't think it's uh, the bottle. I don't think it's a w- what about when he kills a guy with the bottle? That was brutal. Yeah, bashing his face in. Oh my god! When she cuts his his face and it's just like flopping, like <laughs> yeah, that was gross. I mean, I think it had some horror elements. Yeah, uh, but I don't think it is a horror movie. I think all fairy tales have some grim aspects to them. Um, 
But I think that kind of ups the ante. It sets the stakes. You yeah. know, it's, it's a dangerous world. Which, again, it's a cruel world, which goes back to uh, the mother uh, telling her daughter that. Which I think is just amazing. Life isn't like your fairy tales. The world is a cruel place. It's like, yeah, I get it. And so are fairy tales. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen this pale man? <laughs> We uh, we've definitely seen a lot of you know straight to video B movie uh, renditions of of fairy tales, classic fairy tales turned into to horror films. Like Hansel and Gretel is a really good example because that's terrifying if you think about it. And um, you've seen like Cinderella and Snow White. Like I think Sigourney Weaver was in the Snow White version that came out in like the '90s. That was a horror film. So I I, I definitely think you're right. If any any fairy tale could be spun as a horror film, and Del Toro kind of toes that line a little bit. He's a sucker for horror. He loves horror. Is he the greatest monster creator of all time? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Sub- subject. I mean, well, it's obviously subjective, but your opinion. I don't know. I I can't I can't respond to that right now. <laughs> I say yes. Um, it's too early in the morning for me to dig into my mind palace and find who the answer is to that. Well, I've been saving this throne for you, and you're going to rule the underworld for the next hundred years if you answer it. So. Uh, I say yes. I think that Pacific Rim, we look at that. Uh, he's very, very Lovecraftian in, in his in his certain ways, but he also has a lot, a lot less racist. <laughs> yes, yes, totally. <laughs> he also has uh, some Cronenberg in him. But man, it's just this cool amalgamation of everything. And I think Hellboy 2 and well, and Hellboy 1 also are both really good examples of what he can do when he has a lot of free reign to kind of do things. And I mean, this movie too, but yeah, he's, he's so fun to watch. I, I mean, there's a reason why movies will just say like from Guillermo del Toro, it'll just have production credits or something. I mean, people are like, Oh, yep. It's going to have really awesome VFX. Yeah. His name definitely has a lot of clout. So much from the the mind of Guillermo del Toro. I know (laughs) from the wallet of del Toro. But yeah, I, I, I think that it's it's so fun. And, and I look at the Pale Man as just that hallmark example of what you can do. But, you know, like Hellboy 2 Golden Army, like we were talking about, I think that was such a spectacle. Shit, even I just thought about this Blade 2. I forgot he did Blade 2. And I really liked his take on the vampires for that, how they had like the faces that opened up and everything. Yeah, um, I, I, I thought that that was really fun. And I'm excited to see what he does next. I mean, he won for Shape of Water. I think that was like, pinnacle for him we don't know what's going to happen after that but what uh death stranding (laughs) he's in death stranding and i don't know what he's working on movie wise but he's a he's good dude he's working on some tv shows oh pinocchio apparently in 2021 (laughs) (laughs) hopefully it's like a scary pinocchio where pinocchio just kills people left and right yikes yeah Yeah. (laughs) I don't like Pinocchio. I don't like Pinocchio either. I always sing the song from it. Um, where he's like, hi, little lady. <laughs> I'll, I'll, instead of an actor's life for me, I'll say like, Alex loves me. <laughs> uh, he's doing a, a remaking a film called Nightmare Alley. It's a corrupt con man teams up with a female psychiatrist to trick people into giving them money. Mm. Sounds sexy. Lots of monsters, probably. <laughs> Um, so why do you think that Del Toro, and I'm asking you, why do you think that Del Toro used the juxtaposition of extreme violence with magical realism? I guess we kind of answered this a little bit to show that yeah. it's it's so dark out there. But 
Both worlds are a cruel place. Yeah, and I, I think but that's just it. Like her kingdom didn't have any of that. There was no pain. There was no lies. No suffering. Well, and I think that he he wanted to show that there's there is some beauty in this world, and 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 she was so innocent. Ophelia had such such an innocence to her, and there was beauty that surrounded her. You know, and even 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 how like monochromatic the entire film is shot, like the filter that they use is so gray and blue and heavy and dark and it's always raining and it's muddy. But her world that she escaped to seems so beautiful. Right. It's just like uh, it's like Wizard of Oz. You know, when she's in Kansas, it's in black and white. But since she goes to Oz, it, it transforms into color. But, you know, it's funny is like I actually like the color palette that was used in in Pan's Labyrinth. So did I. Did you notice uh, that the there was an allusion to um, or a nod to the Wizard of Oz when she goes to that kingdom and it it, it starts as a shot on her feet with those red shoes? It, I think it was very much <laughs> a nod to Wizard of Oz. I don't think I noticed that. No. Oh yeah, I, I I think I totally saw that. And there was some different allusions to, like I was saying to Alice in Wonderland, her dress that she wears that was a spot on. Uh, sure. reenactment of the dress or recreation of the dress minus it you know this was green but and going down the rabbit hole or in this case yep. frog hole yep absolutely yeah. that kind of stuff I didn't I was trying to like find it's been a while since I've read uh, or seen Alice in Wonderland so I was trying to look for other other parts of it but I didn't really I didn't get too much out of it so um, but yeah I think I think there's a lot and I think that's what I really really appreciated about this movie was how much how in depth it was and, and how you can go down the metaphorical rabbit hole when you're when you're watching this film because you're you're discovering more and you're thinking about more and like just your insight alone has helped me go further down this and i'm like oh yeah, okay it sounds like you really like it now you know what it's it is one of those films that i i really am glad we're talking about because i do appreciate it a lot more would i buy it i mean i don't know maybe but um i i probably would you know what i I'd ha- i think yeah i'd buy it i have to it's it's one of those ones that it has a it has a benchmark in cinematic history just for what it did and this was essentially del toro's marking right like this was his mark on hollywood this is how people learned about him so i i i think yeah i think it's one of those movies that i'm glad we discussed it <laughs> let's just put it that way well i mean pan's labyrinth was after hellboy right and blade 2 but i mean those Hellboy wasn't an original thing and it, it was kind of it, it was mixed re- reception from it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. Like I liked it, but I just I didn't know much about Hellboy. And I was like, oh, these are cool create uh, creations by Del Toro. But I wasn't I, I didn't really know who he was. And this was him, right. you know, at his at his prime. This is him doing what he he does best. Right. Well, I think he's developed quite a bit as a filmmaker since this time. But like, um, you know, what's interesting is if you look at his IMDb page, mm-hmm. uh, Hellboy 2 uh, was 2008 and it doesn't have anything until 2013, which was Pacific Rim. And the reason that is, is because he was doing the Hobbit movies with Peter Jackson. That's right. And after three and a half years and they still weren't even done, he's like, uh, I think I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I've overstayed my welcome. <laughs> I got other shit to do. And if you're just going to do your own thing, there's really no need for me to be here. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to bounce. <laughs> I did not like the Hobbit movies. 
just my mm. opinion. But... Makes you wonder what they would have been if uh, if he would have actually directed them. I know. I was pretty upset with those, but pretty, pretty, pretty upset. You know what I do like about those Hobbit movies? Really quick, if I can just yeah talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, the Bilbo, uh, Martin Freeman, he crushes it as Bilbo Baggins. And when he's at the very end of the first Hobbit movie, um, he's talking about how uh, they don't have a home and that's what's most important to him. So that's why he's going to help them. Yeah. I, I just like get like teary eyed. I'm like, oh my God, I love this man so much. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> he does a very good Bilbo. He does. And a movie that I'm not even like that invested in, considering the original Lord of the Rings trilogy is probably my favorite ever yeah um it's it's so funny how i could just immediately just not give like two fucks about these hobbit movies mm-hmm. and, um alex really likes them so she watches them pretty often so i've i've come to appreciate them a little bit more uh just little details but for the most part i'm it, i couldn't do it without them but martin freeman just crushes it and i love how uh just how an actor can just take a role and just take it up 50 notches above the rest and just knock it out of the park and and be the main selling point in the movie i don't know i just think that's pretty powerful stuff yeah i agree i think that he did a very very good bilbo and he was very sentimental and he seemed very selfless and uh it was it's interesting but um i i just i yeah you're i agree i didn't i could not stand the hobbit movies just in the sense of i didn't like how it was a trilogy it shouldn't have been three movies in my opinion <laughs> The book's three, like 300 pages. <laughs> yeah, I just was, oh my God, they, they did so much. Um, okay. Anyway. So, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth. A plus for me. I love wow. this movie. It's like you can read my mind. Uh, yeah, letter grade, so A plus. Awesome. Um, and how did you watch it? Uh, I watched it on the Netflix this time. Mm, yeah, it is available on Netflix. Uh, I think internationally, too. I don't know. Uh, so, hmm, God, this is going to be tough. Um, so for me, oh man, letter grade, I don't know, <laughs> I don't want to do this, uh, I get, I'm going to give it, fuck it, I'm giving it an A minus. Uh, Look at you. Yeah. And real quick, on your notes here, it says, so she died. What the fuck? Why? That was not necessary. <laughs> it's like, that's the whole point. She's not dying. She's returning to her kingdom. It's so funny. I love you, Zach. Okay, so here's here here's what I'm gonna say. And and I think I think this 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 is the perfect episode for this podcast. This is a microcosm for this podcast. I had this immediate reaction and I wrote that note when I was watching it because I have Google Docs on my phone and I was like, what the fuck? I was so mad that she died and it just really, because I was so invested into the story and that that took it out for me. But I researched this. I thought about it. I spoke with you. You and I are are talked about this uh, for the past hour and I like this movie. Um, people change, you know. <laughs> people change. I can change. You can yeah. change. Everybody can change. <laughs> we can stop the Cold War together. All right. We just have yeah. to box each other. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give it an A minus. It's. I, I don't think it's an A plus. Um, but I definitely see why you give it an A plus. Uh, so totally, I I'm going to say yeah, A minus for me. And I just love Del Toro to death. I think he is so so cool and so good. So, yes, Pan's Labyrinth, there we have it. 
<laughs> what do you think it is about um, how she immediately trusts this fawn? Like, wh- why is it that you could just talk to somebody and just immediately think that they know what they're talking about and that we should trust them? So, I think that's so strange. Like, even with, like, Snow White, with this creepy, gross lady that hands her an apple, <laughs> I'd be like, eh, I'm good on that. I had an apple for breakfast. I'm good. <laughs> like, I would just be weary. Stranger danger. And you got this creepy guy with horns hanging out in a in the tunnel. And you're just like, yeah, all right. I buy that. Well, but I think you kind of answered that too, though, um, with how she was so enamored by that little, you know, that fairy, that bug is she has this innocence, this childlike innocence, and she's also um, enamored by fairy tales. So I think that she believes in the goodness. And I think that speaks a lot to her character is she sees beauty in these things and the goodness of people because she's such a wholesome person. So maybe she is just like, oh, hi. Hello, Mr. Fawn. Who are you? Right. Right. I mean, I get. I equate it to like a salesperson, like um, like this fawn. He is literally selling her on what she needs to do, mm-hmm. and and she's like thanking him. And that's what a good salesperson does. Like they they take all your money and you <laughs> thank them for it. <laughs> I think that's so funny. Yeah. You know, I was always a pretty good salesman, and I remember one time I went into a Verizon store when I bought my 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 now current phone, my XS, and I remember this um. This kid, he was just, he he sold me the phone. I got uh, an Apple Watch Series 4. I um, I got the one where it's on its own little phone line. So I got a Dick Tracy watch. And, you know, I walk out of there spending like $1,000. And I'm just like, man, that's a pretty good sales. <laughs> I mean, I sold it all day long. And this guy just took me for everything. I was like, shit. I even told him. I was like, man, you're pretty good at this. Come work for me. <laughs> You're gonna want that true coat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what this fawn is saying. You know, you're gonna want that true coat. Yeah. Well, it'll keep the salt off. He and he he sold her on it. He's like Princess Moana. You know, you you need to come back to the to the realm if you want to do that. And it's just three three simple tasks you have to do before you know the full moon or whatever. Simple in quotes. Yeah, you gotta get some milk with a mandrake root and stuff. That was weird, but. <laughs> Um, crazy yeah I, I i think that every character in this film was so fleshed out and and so cool the doctor might have been maybe the weakest for me but i think everyone was was really really cool and there was a lot going on there politically uh but captain vidal was was just one of those villains that will linger with me he was so evil but the guy who the actor who portrayed him did such a good job of of giving that kind of nefarious you know, sense on screen, Sergey Lopez. Uh, I, I loved it. I thought that he was a very, very good villain. Yeah, absolutely. So, and Ophelia was amazing. So, Ivana Bacaro. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyways, that's it. Cool. Can I, can I take us home? Do it. Bring this uh, tugboat ashore. Tugboat. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at dbcrazypod at edgy armo and at zachdale60 where you can share your thoughts with us and we will discuss them on our show heck you can even tell us what movie you think that we should do for our next episode we always take suggestions we love them we love them we love them uh maybe it can be the next pan's labyrinth for me where i didn't like it at first and because apparently i hate everything according to justin and (laughs) i don't i love everything teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 the secret of the ooze (laughs) Um, But yeah, let us know what you think. And just please remember, don't be crazy. Thank you for listening.